This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. Back in January 2020, where we were planning our Property Patter timetable and lockdown, Zoom calls and toilet roll videos weren't everyday phrases, we thought we'd have a little roundup about now of interesting cases before the summer holidays. A little something for those of you in the property world to listen to on your journey to some sunshine or even on the beach. Our expectations for the summer have changed a bit since then and our podcasts during the past few months have covered a number of COVID-related developments as you would expect. However, there have still been some business as usual cases, some important ones. And so it's still worth looking ahead to what the autumn may bring. My name is Emma Humphreys, a partner in the Real Estate Disputes team at Charles Russell Speechleys. Joining me to discuss these points today are two senior associates from our Real Estate Disputes team, Natalie Duker and Joe Edwards. Welcome both. Natalie, as much as we're going to try to look at some issues other than COVID, I think it's worth reflecting on how the pandemic has affected court operations. Considering the haste with which offices and businesses were shut in mid-March, what's going on now? What's the present position so far as the courts are concerned? Are these now open and operating? So there was undoubtedly a period where the courts were dealing with only a very limited number of cases, specifically at the outset of the pandemic, with skeleton staff. But things are changing and the courts are trying to move forward, particularly with remote hearings. So hearings, for example, by telephone, by video, in a bid to continue to hear as many cases as they can. The difficulty with this is that certain parties and certain litigants are concerned about how the success of their claim may be affected by a hearing being heard remotely. And that's especially so where witness evidence is concerned. There were two recent decisions, one by the High Court and one by the Court of Appeal, both in June 2020, which illustrate the approach the courts are taking to remote hearings and the prospect of parties being able to successfully seek an adjournment for reasons related to COVID-19. The first case concerned um, care proceedings for minors. One party's leading counsel was shielding, so could not physically attend court to cross-examine witnesses. The High Court rejected an adjournment application and ruled that there should be a hybrid hearing, where some of the advocates would be in court and the shielding advocate would attend remotely. The decision was appealed, including on the grounds that a hybrid hearing would be in breach of a party's right to a fair trial, but by not having their advocate physically present in court would not be fair. The Court of Appeal held that the trial should proceed as a hybrid trial and rejected the adjournment application on the basis that it would not be short and certain. There was no indication as to when the shielding regime is going to stop. The second case involved a clinical negligence trial. The defendant wanted to adjourn on the basis that a remote trial would be unfair. Their submissions included perceived unfairnesses if advocates could not be in court and the advocates would not be able to visually assess the demeanour of a witness or the court's reaction to evidence as it was being given. The court rejected the application for the adjournment and held that a remote hearing would in principle be fair. However, in that particular case, the court ordered that the hearing should be heard in person and not take place remotely. And that was because of the length of the trial, the nature and complexity of the issues, and the volume and complexity of the evidence. So I think the moral here is that we should not expect that the court will grant adjournments to hearings because of the pandemic. We should expect cases to continue to proceed remotely. Um, The courts are certainly well set up for video and telephone hearings. 
and parties will spend many more months, we should expect at this point, attending hearings smartly dressed from the waist up, facing a judge in his or her living room. Yes, interesting times ahead. And Jo, I think you've had first-hand experience of how the courts are operating in this new normal. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I had a case that was set to go to trial in June of this year, involving seven witnesses and three experts. We settled the day before trial commenced, but all of the arrangements had been made. Well, in setting the trial directions, the court had to consider the stay-at-home regulations and ordered the trial to go ahead remotely by way of video conferencing. But as we got closer to trial, the government started to relax some of the restrictions, leading to the parties opting for a hybrid trial, whereby the judge, the barristers and all of the solicitors would be in attendance at court. The witnesses and experts would video conferencing from home. Our main concern was how effective the cross-examination of the other side's witnesses would be. As they were not in attendance in person, it would be more difficult to read their body language, which can be particularly important. However, as the witnesses would all be in a home environment, as opposed to the stresses and strains of attending court, they may actually give better evidence. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? I mean, I think we're going to have to get used to quite a new normal in the court experience. As you say, things are easing up, but I imagine we may be using that kind of hybrid approach for quite a while. So let's have a look at some of the cases which have actually been decided during the pandemic and not COVID related. Shall we start with the much awaited case of Duval? This is, of course, a case which concerns a residential landlord's power to consent to alterations which are absolutely prohibited under a lease. Natalie, why is Duval important? I think Duval is important because landlords are frequently approached by leaseholders to grant consent to works which may well be absolutely prohibited under a lease. And we know as practitioners that consents are being given. In this particular case, the Supreme Court implied a term into a lease that the landlord promised not to put it out of his power to comply with a mutual enforceability covenant by licensing works which were absolutely prohibited under the lease. So this means that landlords who have been allowing tenants to do works not strictly allowed by their leases may be in some difficulty. Okay, and can you just clarify for listeners, not everyone may be familiar with the term mutual enforceability clause, what is that? A mutual enforceability clause, which is very frequently found in a long residential lease, is a clause which allows a leaseholder to ask a landlord or freeholder to enforce a breach of covenant against another leaseholder. And generally, the clause will require the leaseholder making the request to indemnify the landlord for its cost of taking action. Okay, thanks. So you need one of those clauses in order to be affected by Duval, is that right? The decision um, in Duval will only apply if the leases contain both an absolute prohibition against the leaseholder doing something. So, for example, um, in the Duval case, we were talking about improvement works to a flat, and there is also a mutual enforceability covenant. But even if there's no mutual enforceability covenant, there is an argument that licensing works which are absolutely prohibited under a lease would still risk the landlord being in breach of a covenant for quiet enjoyment. And it's not limited to applying where works are concerned. This would apply in connection with any absolute covenants in the leases, provided that they also contain a mutual enforceability clause. So, for example, a covenant to keep a flat carpeted might also be applicable 
if there is a mutual enforceability clause in the lease. Okay, so what's the position if a tenant is affected by works that its landlord has allowed a neighbouring tenant to undertake despite the prohibition in the lease? The Deval case concerns an application by a leaseholder for a declaration that permitting the works would put the landlord in breach of a mutual enforceability clause. So principally, the remedies are going to be a declaration that the works would be in breach or the works would put the landlord in breach of the mutual enforceability clause, that the tenants can have damages for any losses suffered, but there could also possibly be grounds for injunctions if, for example, the case did concern, as it did in this, in the Duval case, works to be carried out um, if those works haven't yet started. It's worth looking from the landlord's perspective at how they can protect their position. From a practical point, what we're currently seeing is in lease extension claims where we're acting for tenants against landlords, we're seeing that landlords are trying to remove the mutual enforceability clauses from the new grant of a new term under the leasehold reform Housing and Urban Development Act 1993, so lease extension claims. And landlords could look to try and include express wording that they are permitted to grant licences when granting new leases to try and get around the application of Duval. So another area where uh, I, I think this probably isn't the last word on it, is it? Probably see a bit more to come. Yes, I think that's quite right. Okay, so Duval is obviously a really interesting one for anyone who deals with residential property. On the commercial property side, and aside from coronavirus decisions, Joe, have there been any interesting cases there? Yes, there has been. Uh, there's a particularly interesting recent decision of the High Court relating to the recoverability of over £400,000 of commercial service charges. We do not often see commercial service charge cases going to court, so this one is gaining a significant level of attention. But the landlord in the case is Sarah and Hossein Asset Holdings, and they brought a claim against Black's Outdoor Retail Limited, being the former tenant of its commercial premises for unpaid service charges. Black's refused to pay as it questioned whether the service charges were due in accordance with the lease. Well, the landlord's position was that it had to self-certify the service charge amount, and on doing so, the figure became binding and conclusive, and subject to limited exceptions, it could not be challenged. And because of that, the landlord sought summary judgment against Blacks for the full sum being claimed. And what's meant by self-certification in this context? It seems a bit unusual for a tenant not to be able to question or otherwise challenge its service charge liability. Well, yes, I, I agree. The tenants will want to ensure the service charges are in accordance with the lease. The certification wording in this case was that in the absence of manifest or mathematical error or fraud, such certificate, i.e. the self-certification by the landlord, shall be conclusive. So the question for the High Court was whether that certification provision was to be interpreted as excluding any defence by Blacks that the sums were not due under the lease. Blacks objected to payment of the service charges on grounds that some of the works were unnecessary or were not repair works within the terms of the lease and that the cost of the work had increased by alleged past failures to keep the premises in repair. Okay, so what was the result? 
Well, the court held that the natural and obvious construction of the provision was that the certificate was conclusive as to the amount of the total cost of the services. However, that was quite separate to the question of whether the cost was recoverable from the tenant. Therefore, notwithstanding the certification provision, the tenant still had the ability to challenge the recoverability of the service charges. So in the circumstances, Blacks was entitled to withhold payment on the basis the amount claimed was in dispute. Pending a full trial, the summary judgment application was refused, so the case is to proceed to trial. But interestingly, the landlord has been granted permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal, and I understand the appeal will take place on the 28th and 29th of July, so we are watching this space carefully. Yeah, we certainly will be. These arguments do come up a fair amount, so I think there'll be a lot of interest in that case. And if a landlord wants its self-certification to be binding, what really should it be putting in its lease then? Well, in, in that situation, the drafting would need to be very clear that its determination in respect of the amount and liability for the service charges is to be absolute. But even then, that still might not be the end of the matter as the tenant may argue for some form of implied term that the landlord has to act reasonably. If the landlord has any discretion over payments, there is an even greater risk of an implied term. I would also query whether a tenant would agree to waive any right to challenge the service charges. Also, this provision is not really in accordance with the service charge code, which has a core element of fairness. Potentially, we could see a position that the landlord surveyor acts as expert in determining the amount of the service charges. But even then, I would expect that most tenants would want the ability to challenge the service charge just to give it that additional safeguard. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I really don't understand why tenants would agree to do that sort of waiver. It seems pretty unlikely when you don't know. You know, obviously you make a contract with a landlord initially, but you never know who your landlord might be in the future. That's exactly right. And I'm, I'm surprised that this case has actually um, progressed this far because it would seem so unsuitable for a tenant not to be able to challenge the amount of the service charge. But it will be interesting to see how the appeal continues. Yeah, it will be very interesting. I mean, one of the topics we'll be covering in one of our future podcasts is going to be looking at how uh, lease negotiations uh, may well change as a result of COVID. And of course, it's not just COVID that changes lease negotiations. So uh, it looks like there may be some other cases that people will be factoring in in their lease negotiations in, in the future, particularly, you know, retailers like Blacks who've got some strength to be negotiating with. Well, thank you very much both. It looks like we may well have an interesting autumn ahead, particularly as we start to get to grips with the new normal in the courts. In the meantime, to our listeners, we very much hope that you are listening to this on your way to a break from the challenges of the past few months. We hope you're staying healthy and safe, and we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 